Well, hello, movie freaks, and thank you for spending part of your day with episode number 24 of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that hits the airwaves every second Thursday. Our chats are riddled with spoilers, so take heed of that right now. I'm the gravelly-voiced host of this grimy, hit-pit-level podcast, Ryan Ellis. And here's the man I would kill if he asked me to, Mokushla, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan, and if it's any help to you, I would kill you too. Even if you didn't ask me to. <laughs> it's only a hangnail, Ryan. asked me to, I would murder you. I can't stand to see you this bed. way. It's an ingrown hair. No, you're suffering. <laughs> All right, this week's episode is Million Dollar Baby. Big Oscar winner. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But first of all, we got to talk about the beers. And I say beers because I've got one too. Mine is a simple Miller Genuine Draft in a bottle. But yours is... The Boss. Boss. Never heard of this. Syndicate Brewing. It felt like a very Frankie Dunn-esque kind of character on the label. That's so. what I would drink. Yeah. He, by the yeah, way, is putting see. on a voice in this movie because Clint Eastwood didn't sound like that then. He doesn't sound like that now. Yeah, I might as well break up my beer too. Yeah, let's just fully work this out. Ah, uh, there we go. Oh, yeah. The voice he's putting on is an homage to the producer, Albert Ruddy, Albert S. Ruddy, who won the Oscar with Eastwood for this film. They were at the end of the night at the show. But what's also interesting about that is that Ruddy won the Oscar for The Godfather. He was the producer of that movie. And who presented that Oscar that night? Clint Eastwood. <laughs> More mind-blown. Mind-blown, right? Yet again. So, it was an homage to that guy. It wasn't an homage to Mick. Ah, Mick, you're gonna eat lightning and crap thunder. You're gonna be greasy, fast, Irish tank. I don't train girls. Don't be a girl rock. There was a lot of, not similarities, or homages necessarily, but a lot of Rocky-esque vibes I got watching this movie They're at probably trying points. to play off it, yeah. It was 30 years before it won the Oscars, too. Yeah. Although they had no idea, the Million Dollar Baby. Rocky, they didn't know that going in. In other words, filmmakers in both cases wanted to make a movie. They had no idea they'd be successful financially and big winners at the big show. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's true of a lot of boxing movies generally. It's usually an underdog story, so you've got your underdog fighter here. But the trainer, you know, you got Frankie and Million Dollar Baby versus Mickey and Rocky. They're both gravelly-voiced, cantankerous old men that come to view their boxing protégés as their own kids in a way, right? right? It's usually the only person in that trainer's life of any consequence is the boxer in both cases. Frankie's got scrap and an estranged daughter, but... By the end of it all, it's basically him and Maggie versus the world. Yeah, kind that's of thing, true. Right? In the mm-hmm. same way that it was Rocky and Mick versus the world. Million Dollar Baby was released by Warner Brothers, that's Eastwood Studio, for a long time now. 15 years ago in December 2004. It cost a pittance and made a killing. I'd never even heard of anything about it and suddenly it's out there and everyone's going to see it. Yeah, it made me feel old to know that it was 15 years old. The Oscars that year, I'd never really heard of this movie, and then it was on everybody's lips, and it felt like five years ago to me until I looked at the uh, the made-by date. I'm like, oh, damn, I'm an old man. 91% of critics liked the film with an average of 8.4 out of 10. I know you're not one of those people. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> and 90% of audiences. You can it's see, also... see the veins throbbing yeah. in my forehead. As we did that. a little pre-chat as well. That's one of the reasons I know you're not a big fan. And it's 200th on the IMDb's Top 250. And it was 24th that year, 2004, at the U.S. box office. This movie cost shit and it made that much money. Shrek 2 was number one. We covered Dodgeball. That was number 19. And it's also Clint Eastwood's eighth biggest hit, adjusted for inflation. He's made some giant blockbusters and rarely has he had big budgets. That's one of the reasons he keeps making movies, I think, is because it takes him so little time. He basically gets one or two takes. He takes about a month to make these films. He almost always comes in under budget and under schedule. That's what they always say about the guy. And I'm sure this movie was the same thing. I think they shot it in the early fall and it was out by the end of the year, maybe late November. What did I say? December. You're saying that Clint Eastwood's directorial style is not akin to Monty Burns and Senior Spielberg when they do a hundred takes in his remake of... And it was the best one. <laughs> we did a hundred takes and that was the best one. 
nope. Judah Ben-Hur. He does not. He's never been known to do a lot of takes. So when you say it's his eighth biggest hit, is that him as a director or just him? Directing. At, as an, okay. A lot of those are with him as an actor, including this movie. And I'll do the nutshell right now as well. Old man murders 32-year-old woman in her hospital bed. Or boxer retires. <laughs> Do you think they went into the room with the studio execs and stuff, and their pitch line was just, Boxer retires. And then it's <laughs> yes. sold. Sold in the room. <laughs> Cha-ching. It should have been. <laughs> Let me paint you a picture. There's a boxer. And she, emphasis on she, <laughs> retires. And everyone's mind was blown. The 18 male executives are at the table. Let's and give them a check today. <laughs> just back that wheelbarrow of cash up to your house, and away you go. All right, you're not a fan of this movie. Tell the audience why. I'm not a fan of the movie itself, but I'm a fan of the performances in it. Yes. I think one thing that has become clear as we've gone through movies in this is that I can be very nitpicky and there are certain aspects... You should of... be in a podcast like this. Yeah, but I don't want to always be the guy at the same time that is just slamming a movie. Most of the movies we've talked about are movies that I like and I've enjoyed a lot. And I actually was engaged by this right through the end of it. Yeah, me too. But I attribute that more to the performances because we've got, I think, three performances that I thought were really good in this movie being the three lead characters, mm-hmm. right? Clint Eastwood, Hilary Swank, and, of course, Morgan Freeman. I thought they all put forward really good performances. But the movie itself and the story beats along it, I think at various times to me were rehashes of boxing tropes. Mm-hmm. Again, with that mind-blowing twist of except this time it's going to be a woman, right? Other than that, it felt like a very by-the-numbers boxing movie for most of it. And they also threw in a bunch of threads that felt extraneous. Danger. Yes. The extremely racist. I'd forgotten this. Danger, Barch. Yep. We covered this man, Jay Baruchel, in Goon a few months ago. He wrote that. Whole different kind of character there. It's not his choice. He didn't write this movie. But what a racist dick. And on the other hand, he's nice about it. I ain't got nothing against you people. And he's using the N-word just casually. And I guess people do talk like that. This hick whose family left him. He's completely on his own. He's got that really over-the-top accent. But that didn't age very well. It aged terribly. And then Michael Pena's in this movie, too. He was in Crash. The guy who wrote this movie, Paul Haggis, won the Oscar for directing. Not for directing. One for writing the next year and producing Crash, mm-hmm. which I think was supposed... No, this was supposed to be him directing, and Eastwood took over, and then he ended up writing and directing the next year with Crash, and Michael Pena is a big part of that. He's in this, too, and he's a Mexican stereotype. The guy that plays Falcon in the Avengers movies... Anthony Mackie. There's nothing about that guy that, from moment one on the screen, that you like. He's played right from the get-go to just be the asshole you're meant to hate, just as the Jay Baruchel character. Like you said, I think you're meant to like him mm-hmm. in 2004, but... Harder to do that now. Harder to do it now, but he's not just a hick. Is he handicapped? Does he have some sort of cognitive issues? Oh, I issues? think so, yeah. He's so, definitely dumb, or he's got mental problems. It's one yeah, of the two. and there's a lot of screen time and discussion devoted to this guy, right? And I think some of it is meant to be comic relief, like the whole, Hey, Mr. Scrap, I've been meaning to ask you, how do you get the ice in this here water bottle mm-hmm. moment? Oh, come on. They spent like two or three scenes saying, what the hell is Danger doing staring at the water bottle? That was a joke that they built up, and when it finally paid off, I thought, really? He's like Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. She understands the basic concept of things. She was underground for many years, but good God, she knows what telephones are. Yeah, just cartoonishly dumb. And it seemed like the whole reason for Danger's existence in this movie was strictly so that Scrap can have the opportunity to beat up Anthony Mackie's character. With his hat on and only one glove. Yeah, okay. I still got it. We get it that Scrap was a good fighter who lost his sight and his whole career crumbled around him. And we get that Scrap is a really nice guy. He's demonstrated that many times for the movie that he cares about the members of his gym it paid off not at all for me ultimately because i didn't get anything out of it and even when danger comes back the voiceover says a ghost entered the gym are we meant to understand that danger was the heart and soul fixture of this gym and frankie might be gone but he's back so scrap will be okay that scraps protege i guess because frankie has his own and both of them are extreme underdogs although she does have talent we can tell from the beginning i could beat Danger, and I have no boxing talent whatsoever. Yeah, Danger was already at the gym, quote-unquote, training anyway, when Maggie first appears on the scene, and then a year and a half to two years passes over the course of the movie, and Danger's still there. He's learned nothing. Doesn't know how to throw (laughs) a punch. You see him getting his ass kicked by Anthony Mackie, and he's basically slapping at the air. Danger is, like you said, coherent enough to understand the basics of life, so surely he's 
coherent enough to understand how to throw a punch. We've and, watched people do it in that place a for a long is. time. Yeah, for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that. But he's make... not good. Is the point? He's not good. He's in this not film. good. And Anthony Mackie was okay, but he's a stereotype. Her family are awful. But we'll talk to them in a second. <laughs> I actually want to skip to the end because that's the reason to do this movie. I think when I first yes. saw Million Dollar Baby, I'd heard very little about it. By the way, I like this movie more than you. Bev is yeah. very glad she's not sitting here right now because she does not want to cover this film. She's upstairs, incidentally. If you hear any hacking or coughing, she's battling a cold. So, listeners, if you hear that, that's what that is. But she's glad she's not here right now because she's not a fan of this movie. Right. I was all along. I like it more than both of you. But the thing I liked the most was when she becomes paralyzed because I didn't know that was going to happen. That's rare in a movie. Even then, it was rare in a movie. It's even more so now rare to surprise me, especially with a fairly major release as this was getting to be as the weeks and months were going on in December and into January. And then when you see her in the hospital bed, you realize, okay, she's not just hurt. That's it. She's not boxing anymore. This has now become a paralyzed movie, and then it becomes a right-to-die movie. Yeah. And the Oscars love right-to-die movies. Cuckoo's Nest is not about that. But in the end, Jack Nicholson is killed by somebody, and it is a mercy killing. The Sea Inside, a movie you probably haven't heard of, the same year, in 2004, a foreign film. A guy breaks his neck diving into the water, and it's, what's his name? Javier Bardem plays him. Mm Mm-hmm. And he wants to die, but they legally can't do it. And I forget that movie. I saw it way back then. I haven't seen it since. But I think it's about how if different people combine the poison, then it's not one person who's killed them. They don't get charged for it. <laughs> and I think he dies in that film. That's but it's the same year as this movie and also won an Oscar. So Hollywood at times, at least, loves the right to die movies. And that surprised me about this film because I had no idea it was going that way. And I also remember one more thing that first time I saw it. When she says to Frankie earlier, talking about a dog that her dad took in the woods and killed. Right. And then when she recalls that later on, says, remember what my dad did with the dog? Whatever she puts it. And he says, don't say it. That's more Batman than it is Clint Eastwood. I can get there, Ryan. I can get there. Don't ask me that. Damn it, I can't. That's not bad. I, I just keep going bad. to Batman. Very gravelly. We I'll, haven't I'll done be, Batman much the last couple months. I'll be in the corner just practicing my Clint Eastwood <laughs> quietly. But here's my point. When she said that, I'm in the theater by myself. I never make noises in movies. I don't talk back to the screen. I literally gasped well, and said, no. Your stomach might make some noises. During often, the, yeah. Yes, but you don't vocalize a lot of right. sounds. I see, okay. I was shocked by that. I was shocked how much I cared. I did not see that coming. She'd want to die. And in the end, he does kill her. So what did you think of that last maybe 30 minutes of the movie that comes out of nowhere? But one thing about it that's good is it is set up by when she's going through the comedic stretch of beating people in the first round. Bing, bang, 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 win. Bing. Yeah. That's a recurring joke. He takes the stool out of the ring for seconds and puts it right back in there. So you set up over and over again that that stool is getting put in there because it would be when she wants to come sit down. And if it weren't there, she wouldn't have broken her neck. Of course, the other fighter is such a dirty... Yeah. No wonder she wins all the time, by the way. The blue bear, she's always cheating. Yeah, she's terrifying. But you set up that stool being there and that's what breaks her neck. So anyway, what about that part of the film? There's a lot to parse in that last 30 minutes from a couple of different angles. Mm -hmm. One of the points where we really diverge, I hated the way that she broke her neck, the way she got paralyzed. They spend some time setting up how dangerous and dirty this fighter is. Always protect yourself. Yeah, and keep your hands up, never turn your back, all that kind of stuff. I find it impossible that a fighter as dirty as this blue bear person would A, be allowed to retain the title and fight. Because we see clips of her. She's basically elbowing people in the face. She's grappling them by the neck and throwing them across the ring kind of stuff. She's always cheating. She sucker punches Maggie twice earlier Mm. in this fight before this happens. And this is a point. Oh, loses a point, and then ultimately, of course, the round ends and Maggie turns her back and she just gets blindsided and ultimately falls on the stool. I didn't like how dirty they played this character, only because you can achieve the same end if you want Maggie to get grievously hurt, because let's face it, boxing is a dangerous sport. Everything in boxing is backwards. That's Morgan Freeman. <laughs> it is. the same voice. <laughs> Which I thought was actually quite of interesting. That whole sequence about being backwards I thought was pretty cool. He repeats it a lot, and yeah. maybe it's a little bit too much, but that's a movie writing trope. Yeah. To say something over and over and over again. But Clint Eastwood tells her, we can't know how good you are because you keep winning in the first round, and ultimately you're going to fight somebody that you can't just immediately defeat, and then what's going to happen to you? And they could have still paid that off very well in this fight. All you need to have happen is for whoever the Blue Bear turns out to be, even if she doesn't get played as the dirty fighter, she's still the bruiser. She's the champ. She's much bigger than Hillary Swank's character. And probably a better fighter. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. More experienced. So just have her land a savage uppercut that catches Hillary Swank under the jaw and she falls awkwardly, she breaks her neck, and she's paralyzed. And you have the same movie without the almost cartoonish landing at exactly the right angle at the tipped stool in order to break her neck. Like For me, that was a bridge too far to cross, I think. It was okay. a little bit too much. And I think the only reason they included that very particular detail is because they wanted a reason for Clint Eastwood's character to go back and be angry with Scrap. You weren't there for me. You didn't come with me. 
and this guy that was in your place did what you would have done. No, what he's mad at him for is for inspiring her in the first place and not making her leave the gym. He was also mad at him for not being there at the fight. He says something like, it's your fault. It's one of the meanest things Clint Eastwood's character has ever said in the movies, and he's he's played bad guys, I guess, but he's often played badasses, and it's one of the meanest things he's ever said to anybody. He does apologize for it later on. He does, yeah. But Scrap doesn't really react. Morgan Freeman is playing Morgan Freeman. He's not really an emotional actor as great as he is. He doesn't really have a tremendous range. But that's got to really hurt when somebody's saying, she's paralyzed because of you. You feel the emotional weight of that when it's said to Morgan Freeman, and Mm -hmm. you're right, it cuts deep. I took it both ways, both because you were the reason that I ultimately ended up training her. You kept encouraging her to be here. And also because you did not come with us. I had this other guy in the corner, and he wasn't paying as much attention. He left the stool out there, even though he could see her falling. Once it becomes the euthanasia movie, I've had family members in that situation. Elderly, mind you, but still mentally fully capable and still there, but with bodies that have effectively died around them. And I can't imagine a more horrific... Yeah. It's a terrifying prospect to me to be a prisoner in your own body. Especially for somebody physical like this who is in her prime. She was maybe 33, right. 34 years old. So maybe a little past her physical prime. But was becoming a world-class... Was a world-class fighter. Yeah. Great success. And she was nothing before this. And now suddenly... If somebody could just fix a neck, she'd be fine. She could go back out there and do this all over again for a few more years. The sea inside's the same thing. When they first show Javier Bardem before he dives in the water, he's Javier Bardem. He's just a tough-looking guy, but he's this wasted-looking old man through most of the movie. Yeah, and they really play the point to a T when they show the gangrenous limbs, the bed sores that she gets, and mm-hmm. she doesn't even know they're there, and ultimately they cut off a leg, and she's totally unfazed by it. They took the leg, boss. You can't feel it. It's nothing to you. It's dead weight. That was an emotionally heavy moment, or 20 minutes, not moment, but for a movie that spent an hour and a half, more or less, playing up the live your dream, succeed at all costs kind of moment, and then turns it on its head and says, oh, it's all out the window, and now you have nothing, and your only recourse is to kill yourself, because mm-hmm. otherwise your life is going to be unbearable to you. A lot of people are offended by that. I've read this before in movies where they portray that I can't live if I don't have my eyes, or if I don't have my body, if I don't have whatever it is. Yes. But a lot of people who've gone through that have been very offended and have said, you can still have a life. Yep. And I think that's part of my issue with it as well, is as much sympathy as I do have for exact physical situation, because she is not just paralyzed from the waist down or something. She's paralyzed to the point where she can't breathe on her own. She'll be in a respirator for the rest of her life. And they really play up the fact that she is going to be at the mercy of a large group of caregivers for the rest of her life. Every single moment. Christopher Reeve-esque. If you insist on going this route, and I don't think you need to for this to be an effective movie, I think you're going to have an emotionally effective ending to this underdog story that doesn't have to be the rote look, she won the championship and everyone feels good. You can still have her go down a darker path if you want to. That doesn't have to be this euthanasia thing. And you can still have an emotional connection with Clint Eastwood's character, however you want to get there. You can have the divergence with Maggie's family. You can have all of that in a different way that I think would be a little bit more believable. But let's put that aside and say she does end up paralyzed and we've got this story thread. Which, by the way, I liked because I was so surprised by it. I thought this movie was outstanding the first time I saw it. Not quite as much of a fan Mm -hmm. of it as I used to be. Still like it more than you and Bev certainly do. But that surprise was great. It does differentiate it from the other boxing movies. I'll give it that. But you've spent that much time building her up and making you feel good. You've brought her crashing down to earth. Why not have the movie play out in a way where she has some success thereafter? Why does she have to die in order for this movie to be effective. Even if it comes to the point where she's paralyzed from the waist down. So she doesn't need the respirator because that presents a lot of issues to having a life where you can actually go out every day and try to achieve something, Mm -hmm. just based on the care needs. Although in 2019, that might not be the case. You can do a lot from home. But maybe she becomes a public speaker or something to that effect. Or maybe she herself becomes a promoter or a gym owner and she wants to train young women to sort of follow Mm -hmm. in her footsteps if she still loves boxing. And there's every indication that she does, that she feels like she lived her dream and she's happy about it. She doesn't ever seem distraught about what she attempted to do. And And Scrap even talks about that. Scrap says she wouldn't trade it for anything. Exactly. Yeah, Lived my dream, I got my shot. Yeah, and as he says to Frankie, like how many people live and die every day scraping by in life and never trying to achieve whatever their dream happens to be. Doing the job she had before, waiting tables. So in her case, she had the opportunity to live her dream and she's happy to call it a life at that point, ending it the way she did. 
I would have really appreciated that kind of ending versus the one we got, just because it is such a fucking downer of a movie. It really is, yeah. And that's true of not just the end, but the whole movie. Every time you feel a little bit good about what Maggie is achieving or what she's trying to get to, the movie just like gut punches you. Whether it's her interactions with her family where she buys them a house mm-hmm. and they tell her, go fuck yourself, essentially. Her family are so cartoonish. Yeah, they're not great. And as much as I love character actress Margot Martindale, I don't know if you watch BoJack Horseman. We do. I love that, re- that recurring gag of character actress Margot Martindale. Right, yes. As much as I do enjoy her, it's such a mustache-twirling She plays it the way it's written and directed fine, but it's written and directed badly, or at least in very cliche form. Ricky Lindholm plays Maggie's sister. Ricky Lindholm is a charming, sweet person. Whenever she's on podcast, Doug loves movies. She's been on that a lot of times. She's actually pretty scary in The Last House on the Left, the remake. She's one of the bad guys in that. Is she? I don't remember her in that movie. Exactly. That's how good she is in the film. So Aaron Paul's in that, too. He's one of the other guys in that gang. But here she plays a cliched, lame, fuck you, sister, kind of character. Yeah, JD, my boyfriend's going to get out of prison right. in a few days. But they're doing what God. they've been directed and written to do. So I guess we got to blame Haggis and Eastwood. Even the original writer of the short stories this is based on FX Tool, who apparently died right after Eastwood signed on. So we never really? saw the final product and the success it had. If this movie was made and it made $20, then, hey, my movie got made. But it was a success. Yeah, I didn't like the family sequences at all, especially when they go to Disneyland for almost a week before they come see <laughs> yeah. her. They can be heartless, but that heartless? Come on. And who wants to spend almost a week at Disneyland Fair, in California? Yeah. I mean, right. good Lord. I get that you're from Hicksville, Nowhere's America, or whatever this family's portrayed to be from, but it's not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Actually, one criticism I have about the Maggie and Frankie scenes at the end, even though I think generally they're really good and it's some of the best acting Eastwood's ever done. Yes, but I would one thing, agree with that. But one thing I did not buy at all is that Maggie is making jokes about her situation. Chronologically in the movie, it could be argued it's been weeks before she actually does try to start killing herself by biting her own tongue, and when he actually does it for her. Oh yeah, that was vicious, But she's making jokes maybe five minutes before she's actually dead. And again, it's days and days, but maybe she should be more depressed. She doesn't really seem that depressed until she starts saying, can you kill me? If you're that eager to die, you wouldn't think that you'd be in the mood to crack wise. Although maybe it's just one of those things where... Gallows humor? Yeah, exactly. But that's usually for things like private detectives and cops. <laughs> so Not for somebody who's paralyzed. She should have been wearing a fedora in her... Yeah, see here now. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of wended our way through the last 30 minutes and my complex feelings about it. In many ways, it follows my feelings about the rest of the movie. Clint Eastwood, I think, and Hilary Swank both act very well. And when Morgan Freeman is called upon to be the emotional foil to Frankie's character to sort of talk him around to what he has to do, effectively... I think he's very effective in that as well, but I question the necessity of it, I guess. As much as you want to differentiate yourself from the standard boxing movie, I think there might have been more believable ways to do it and maybe ways to do it that didn't have to be quite so extreme. And grim. And well, grim. Let's, let's talk about some pluses, though, because you said the performance is very good. I agree with you on that. Yes. I don't know that Eastwood ever cried in movies more than twice. It's funny, too, because he says early on, don't come crying to me if you get hurt. But he's the one who cries. He cries more than she does in this movie. <laughs> but also he cried in In the Line of Fire when he talks about how he couldn't save Kennedy. That's a really good performance, too. He didn't direct that. One of the rare movies he's made in the last, I don't know, 40 years maybe, or at least 25 to 30 years that he was in but didn't direct. Although the last thing he's acted in still... No, that's not true. He did The Mule just last year, which I haven't seen. But before that, the last movie he was actually in was Trouble with the Curve, a sports movie we will never do because it's awful. And understand really? nothing about baseball. <laughs> But he actually acted for somebody else, which was rare because other than Wolfgang Peterson in In the Line of Fire and Trouble with the Curve, I don't think he'd acted for anybody else since, I don't know, maybe we're talking the 70s when it was Don Siegel doing the Dirty Harry films. Or maybe even some of those Dirty Harry sequels, other directors had those. Hmm. But he cries in this movie, which is surprising. I like the touch of the priest who's a bit of an asshole who swears. There's got to be some guys like that that don't walk around like they're the Pope or Jesus himself and actually are real people who's actually pissed at this guy who's always going to Mass. And they have some real frank conversations, but that's where he's crying. I can't kill her. Because it's like his daughter, obviously, the not really subtle subtext. And Morgan Freeman does voiceover in this, as he does in so many movies. I don't think Clint Eastwood did voiceover in very many movies. That's an unusual touch for him. But when you cast your friend Morgan Freeman, who'd worked with you on Unforgiven, (laughs) I guess that's what it's going to be. Well, let's use the voiceover guy. Which was also a weird aspect of it to me. And I know we were going to talk about what we liked about this movie, but before before we go further down that road, because you're right, those three performances in particular were the highlights. I think she's the best thing in the film, by the way. And we're doing the rare sports female lead 
Yeah. It's her movie more than it is Eastwood's or Freeman's. You're not really rooting for either Freeman or Eastwood at any point in this movie. Even in the beginning of the movie when Eastwood is coaching Big Willie, you don't care about Big Willie. You don't care about Eastwood. And when Eastwood gets kicked to the curb, you kind of feel it a little bit because you can sense mm-hmm. how much he had invested in this fighter personally and professionally. That's an extraneous scene, but it also needs to be there. I know I'm contradicting myself there. But he has to get kicked to the curb because the three of them have to be losers in one way or another. Yes. Maggie through her whole life until now. No one believed in her, especially not her family. Frankie, if not before, and probably before, but now we've literally seen it just recently. Somebody said, you got me to this point. but And the guy's nice. Mike Coulter plays him. He's actually a pretty good actor. I thought he did a good job. A lot of the other fine, actors yeah. were caricatures. I think he was pretty good. But he is making a reasonable argument, but he's also leaving behind the guy who helped him get where he is. So Frankie's a loser, and of course, Scrap's a loser, because look where he lives. Well, he's not a loser anyway. You know what I'm saying, is that he's got a loser-type life, and he's just living in this hit-pit gym. They're all losers to a certain degree or another, and Coulter does a good job in the little he's given to do in this movie. And even when he wins, you don't care, really, but that's not the point. You had a problem, though, you wanted to bring up, though. You had an issue again. I would if I could remember what oh, it was. Oh, I've forgotten it. Okay. <laughs> I got sidetracked by Coulter. The whole thing with the priest, as much as I liked the characterization of the priest, because it was more of a human... A human. human. I, don't know, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> he was a human being. And my cousin's husband is a priest. It's interesting for someone like myself who's not at all religious, and you see caricatures of priests in media or in the news or something. And when you know what an actual human being is like when they're not just on the job, you realize these are just men and women like anybody else. What I didn't care for so much was what felt like a tacked on storyline about Eastwood and his daughter. Mm. I understand why they put it in there. And I think we had a little, like you said, pre-record discussion and Bev was there and she said, whether it was Eastwood or the screenwriters or the producers, whoever it was that made these decisions, it didn't feel like they give the audience a lot of credit. And you needed the estranged daughter character for Frankie in order to really make that obvious connection that, oh, now Hillary Swank is his adoptive daughter, right? And like, her dad's dead and she needs a father figure yeah, or somebody to be close to, but a father figure especially. Exactly. So you really led down the garden path. This older guy and this younger female fighter are going to become almost family to one another. Mm-hmm. You could have had that without the abusive father and the estranged daughter, but they put those two characters in the background in order to really lead you down that. I don't know if the father was abusive. He's just dead. You're right. The father was not abusive. And we don't know what Frankie did, but the letters come back to him, return to sender. That could be that she moved, but I think it's supposed to imply the daughter saying, I want nothing to do with you. Leave me alone. So what did he do that made it that bad? When he's weeping in church saying, I can't kill her. And the priest says, whatever brought you here every day for the last X number of years, however long it's been, this is going to be worse if you kill her. And I don't agree, by the way. I don't either, but neither one of us are religious. Coming from his mouth, I understand why he yeah, said it. His Be- job, he has priest. to say that, that's true. He says to Clint Eastwood, listen, the only people that come every day are those that are haunted by something they've done in the past. So, okay, he's haunted. But again, it seems like the kind of thing that could have been achieved simply by being regretful of his past. He blames himself, for instance, for Morgan Freeman's character's blindness in one eye because yep. he didn't call the fight, even though he says... I wasn't the manager, it wasn't my fight to call, but he still blames himself. There are reasons for him to be regretful of his past actions in a way that would lead him to seeking solace in church, even though he brags on the priest every time he goes. That doesn't have to be this estranged daughter background story point. And even at the end of it, the voiceover, as you said, Morgan Freeman is reading the beats of the story to the audience, and then it all turns out this is a letter that he's writing Mm to Eastwood's daughter. Katie. Katie. Because nobody knows where Eastwood's gone, and I know you guys haven't gone along for a long time, but you should know what kind of man your father is. Right. Honestly, if I'm Eastwood's daughter and I receive a random letter from an old man I've never met that just... Return to sender also. What do I care? Who are you to me? She I didn't mean, open his letters. Why would she open... That's right. Eddie Dupree's letters. That's what it would say on the return. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I do have a reasonably good question. Bev and I do these quite a bit, although we haven't done this in a while. I have two. Lay it on me. One of them is about Katie, the daughter. Would Katie care about even one-third of what Scrap writes to her? No. Just go by what his voiceover is. He talks about so many things that we need to know as an audience, and that's why it's there, because we think it's a voiceover until the very end. It was a clever touch first time. You see the movie a few times like I have now. Not so clever. 
she wouldn't give a shit about most of the things he's saying. Can you imagine getting this fat envelope and you open it up and there's about 40 pages of bland description about the person reading like, who is Maggie? Why do I care? Some mentally disabled boy was beaten up (laughs) and came back to the gym. Okay, I don't understand. The odds of her actually... The Maggie thing, yes, because that's the daughter figure. I get that one, but the detail that's in there, which we know is because you have to have the voiceover for the movie. She would get about halfway through that lengthy letter and just give up and never get to the consequential endpoints that Morgan Freeman and wants her to understand at the end anyway. The other thing that I think you could have played off of is Frankie's conservative nature. He becomes that way because of Morgan Freeman's debilitating injury, and that's led him to be very cautious about the way he handles his fighters. Right, He doesn't want to put anyone else in harm's way the same way that Scrap was put in. That costs him... Big Willie, ultimately, because Big Willie wants that title fight, and Clint just wants to get him a few couple more, more fights, and you're ready. Couple more fights. Now he's ready fights. now. Yeah, he was clearly ready, but it really plays up just how cautious Frankie is at this point in his li- or has been for a long time in his life. So when Maggie ultimately gets that title fight, this is where I'll rely on you to really clarify this if I'm wrong, because the way I understood this, initially he wanted the title fight to be pushed back a little bit further. He didn't think she was quite ready. But then circumstances, as they played out, led him to actually book the fight for a million dollars and away we go. And then she gets paralyzed as a result. So it was really almost punishing him for not following the conservative approach that he had been for decades at that point. She could have got hurt anyway. It was a freak accident. That's an important thing to remember. Maybe the reason why, and you didn't like that she gets paralyzed that way rather than a really bad punch takes her out. Maybe the reason why is just to say, dumb luck is why this whole thing happened. My point is not that she got paralyzed because it was too soon. Because like you said, it was a freak accident. And it could have happened any number of freaky ways. But if you're going to look for a reason for Clint Eastwood's character to really castigate himself, to really rake himself over the coals, it doesn't have to be because of the surrogate daughter aspect of it necessarily, or his relationship with God or anything he's done in the past. From his internal monologue perspective... He set aside his conservative nature to get her this title fight before he probably really believed she was ready for it. And look, she got paralyzed. And whether or not it was a freak accident, it still happened. And I think if that happened to any one of us in Frankie's yeah. shoes... we blame ourselves, We too. would blame ourselves, I too. I know I would. Well, people are always leaving Frankie, Willie. Obviously, his family, his daughter especially, but whatever ex-wife or girlfriend is not with him anymore either. And then Maggie does by dying, but he's the one who has to kill her. Yeah. So people are leaving this guy. But then I do like a touch at the end where he's eating pie at the diner because when they go to that diner earlier in the film and he's loving the pie, he says to her, now I can die and go to heaven. Well, the last time we see him is in that diner. Now he talked about maybe I could buy this place. So maybe he did. Maybe he went there to buy it. But he's also somebody who's murdered somebody. We may be fine with it. I'm fine with that. It's your life. I understand why it's illegal, but I don't agree that it's illegal. But he's basically on the run. You could also argue that maybe this is some kind of heaven moment for him because he says, I can die and go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Well, he's eating this pie again, but he's also done something that's going to break him. I liked that ending shot as well. I think it's a very poetic ending, actually. You need to know what kind of man your father was. Is a good reveal, but maybe not. And whatever. The very last shot in the poetry of that is very good, I think. That was nice. I wasn't sure how to interpret that for the reasons you talked about. I didn't know whether, okay, is this meant to imply that he's now bought that place and he's running it? Or does it mean that he went there to have that one last piece of pie and then he was going to kill himself as maybe well? Maybe so. Because like Morgan Freeman's I can die and go to heaven. Yeah, and Morgan Freeman's character said he had nothing left. It had to be done because he couldn't live with himself if he couldn't, or if he hadn't helped her the way that she asked him to. But at the same time, it was such an emotionally draining and destroying moment for him that he also couldn't live with himself if he did it. Yeah, whether she wanted it or not, and obviously she did want it. She did, yeah. So I don't know how it's meant to be interpreted, and I was on the fence as far as how I read it, to be honest with you. I'm not really sure. My second reasonably good question, incidentally, Obviously, Scrap inherits the gym, whether it's legally or not. But he's got the gym because Frankie never goes back. I never saw him again. And it's a gym, he said earlier, is losing money. So thanks for nothing, Frankie. (laughs) (laughs) Now i got to pay money to run this fucking place. Yeah, and it was a little bit of a dubious inheritance, isn't it? Scrap, who lives in that gym. So, I mean, I guess it's nice that you now own your shitty little room in the back of this building you've been living in for who knows how long. He actually says, is it after Big Willie's fight when he wins the title? Clint Eastwood's character brings Scrap the hamburger and says, did you watch the fight? And he goes, yeah, I've got HBO. That's so fun. That was funny. <laughs> was Scrap messing with Frankie or was that a true statement? I read it as a true statement. And then you look at Scrap's old TV on the dresser. I'm like, 
there is no way you could get HBO on that thing. You can't get a cable hookup to something like a bunny ear TV like that. You'd lie, scrap. <laughs> but it's a funny line, at least. It's almost always humor, even Unforgiven, as much as that's very serious and is about murdering people. There's a lot of gags in it. This doesn't have as many. But then when she's knocking people out, I think that's pretty funny. Yeah, and actually, there were one or two moments, and I think they're almost exclusively read by Morgan Freeman. Did you notice that he also is always reading a comic book when he's lying in bed? Is it comic scrap? books? Okay. Yeah. He's like a kid then. He is, yeah. Although like a lot a... of adults read them, as we know, from all the Avengers and Marvel movies. Yeah, that's true. There's a line, I think it's the first thing in the trailer, and it's one of the first things in the movie as well. And I think it's a good way of nutshelling prayer when he's praying. You know what I want? No use in repeating myself. Because <laughs> I don't know why people need to pray for something all the time. If you think there's a God, he heard you the first time. <laughs> or she, or it. Doesn't need to hear you over and over again. <laughs> Enough already. <laughs> I get it. You want that job. I know. <laughs> You're just not good enough for it. There's also a sign in the gym that says, winners are simply willing to do what losers won't. And that's, of course, the kind of thing you have in gyms, but I think it's also supposed to be subtext to killing somebody, as in oh, euthanizing good. someone. I'm willing to do something that no one else will. Forget winning or losing. It's just, I will do this. I don't want to, but I'll do this. I hadn't put that together with the ending of the movie. I applied it strictly to Maggie's character, right? Because she's the one that's willing to scrap for pennies in order to get membership in the gym she wants and to buy her speed bag and to spend the hours and hours with her arm taped up to her chin so she doesn't drop it when she throws a punch. So she's not the most talented, not even close to the youngest fighter out there, but she's willing to put in the hours and the effort in order to achieve what she wants to achieve. I mean, it might equally apply to Frankie's character as well in this circumstance. Whether or not he would consider himself a winner when it's all said and done because of what he did. No, he's not a winner. I'm just saying that I think that's subtextual. Forget the winning or losing, but just I'm willing to do something that most other people maybe wouldn't be. Even he has to drag himself kicking and screaming to do it, understandably. Yeah, I think that's fair. Here's one of my other favorite things about this movie. I always read into this from the first time I saw it, and I wrote a review of this, and I should post it on the website. When she says, for the title fight in Vegas, we'll fly there and drive back. Fly there and drive back. How are we going to do that? <laughs> I think her plan was... No matter how the fight goes, she comes out with a lot of money. She was going to buy a car. This nobody who never had anything before was going to buy her first car. And instead, she's never going to walk again or certainly not drive a car again. I think that's, sure. If I'm right, it's very subtextual. But why would she say drive back? And of course, she does say it in the ambulance. They are driving back that way. But I think it's supposed to be when she says it the first time. I'm going to do something I could have never done if I wasn't a boxer. If you and I didn't make this work together. I was wondering if she wanted to fly there just assumed she would win and be the champion. Like you said, have half of the million dollar purse or whatever that they had agreed to for the fight. And I thought she wanted to drive back to either stop in at that same pie place again and have the celebratory piece of lemon rang pie maybe in tribute to her father or just to celebrate it or to drive by wherever her hick family is from. Look, ma, I'm not an embarrassment to you. After all, I've got the title belt, and now I'm even richer than I was before to try to win her love yet again, because that would have been before the falling it out. It still would have happened, though. That mother was never going to love her. No, of course not. By the point she buys the house for her mother and then asks her, are you proud of me? And the mother's only response is, no, you're an embarrassment. I've already criticized that, but as you say it, I'm going to say this one thing in a compliment to those kinds of scenes. We've seen it so many times in movies and TV shows where the disapproving parent sees the kid playing the piano or boxing or whatever it is they're good at now, and then they get it. Let me hug you. I was wrong all along. The fact that her family never does, especially her mother, never does accept it, at least that's different. Okay. When you Still say, not well played, but different. This isn't meant as a criticism of the actors involved in the scene, mm -hmm. more so the writing, but this is a little bit of a different take on it. And maybe if it was a little less ham-handedly written, it would have been more effective, but no, fair point. But anyway, I thought that the road trip back was more like a celebratory trip to take with Frankie for whatever purpose. Multi-purpose, I guess. Multi-purpose, okay. yeah. But maybe you're right. Maybe she just wanted an opportunity to buy a Corvette and drive that back to the gym. Mm -hmm. or buy Someone him. who could barely afford to eat when the movie starts. Or She's taking other people's leftovers. Buy him a car because we saw the first fight of the movie. And I'm not sure if that was meant to be Big Willie's car or meant to be Frankie's car. But they have to push it out of the parking spot because it won't go into reverse or whatever. It's such a piece of garbage, so... You know what? As we've talked through this... There's more depth than you thought? There's more depth, and there's more ambiguity in almost like a good way. There's a no, lot of things thrown in that you can decide for yourself how you want to interpret it and what Eastwood makes no sense. directs sometimes with both a hammer, but also a soft glove. And this movie may be more than most. Unforgiven is a better film than this. 
But that film's got plenty of stuff that's more of the hammer on the head and do you get it? Yeah. But there's also a lot of subtlety in that film for sure too. If I had to rate this movie, I might say it's a 7 out of a 10. That's solid. It was emotionally affecting in a lot of ways. There was depth. So I can't say that I even disliked the movie. I don't think yeah. I disliked it at all. And you're also talking yourself into liking it more than you thought you would an hour ago. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other thing. When we talk about it and you raise points about things that I hadn't considered, mm-hmm. I mean, it brings that different lens to it. And Seeing as many times as I have does help. I've seen it probably five times now, four times anyway. There's also maybe a third reasonably good question I should have brought up, which is the Mokushla thing. Yeah. So she wonders what it means the whole way. That's a running gag, of course. We find out what it means at the end. My darling, my love, that kind of thing. She's that curious about it from the beginning. Months go by and she never <laughs> looks it up, never tries to find an Irish person and say, hey, you know, or Gaelic, whatever it is. Despite the fact that every one of her fights as she's progressing up the ranks is just littered with Irish fans or like wannabe Irish fans. That was another fun little aspect of it that I enjoyed as well as the commentary about whenever she went somewhere, whether she was the title fight or not. She was the main event. She was the main event. And it was either because there were lots of Irish folks where she was going or a lot of people that wanted to pretend to be Irish folks. Probably that. To be her fans. I think it was too. And as Toronto sports fans, I think we're well familiar with Boston and all of the wannabe Irish Bostonian fans that sports town attracts. So it kind of spoke to me a little bit from that perspective. But yeah, you could think she would lean over the ropes at one of these fights and be like, hey. What does Mo Kushla mean? He won't tell me. <laughs> it's on my robe, and he put it there, and he won't tell me. <laughs> Listen, my darling, tell me. Don't call me my darling. What, what does it mean? <laughs> becomes a who's on first thing. <laughs> Swank was another sports movie that I've never seen before. I've seen all the Karate Kids multiple times, but not Next Karate Kid. Or if I've seen it, I've completely forgotten that I saw it. You repressed the memory at this point. And she won an Oscar for Boys Don't Cry before this. She's only been in, I don't know, maybe five movies that anybody gives a shit about. Boys Don't Cry is a good performance. This is even better, I think. Sandra Bullock and Ashley Judd were in line for it. They would have been pretty good in the film, too. But I think this is the best thing Hilary Swank has ever done. She's so believable. Hmm. I was reading online that they basically shot the first draft. Now, that's not really true. When they make a movie, they rewrite stuff almost always, right? So you get the blue pages, then the red pages, then the orange pages, and so on. So your script is multicolored after months have gone by or even weeks have gone by. Apparently, they're basically shooting the white pages. Eastwood said, we're making this movie this way. So maybe some of the problems are they didn't work on the script as they went through, like most movies do, and they probably should have. So whatever criticism you want to make, maybe it should be on the screenplay level because, and that's Eastwood's fault actually as the director for not adapting that. But also kudos to him for sticking with what they originally purchased and not changing FX tools, original stories so much. He was 74, Eastwood was, when they made this movie. He's still directing now because they did The Mule last year. Another hit. Also didn't cost much. He always has quick shoots. And he won his second Oscar for this movie. Well, he's won four, but second for directing. Right. The movie won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor. In retrospect, Swank is the one I would give the award to all over again, but I wouldn't give it Best Picture. I wouldn't have given it Best Picture that year anyway. My favorite movie was Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Mind, which Bev and I covered years ago. Of the other ones it was up against, maybe The Aviator, I guess. Really? Yeah, it's a pretty good film. The nominees for Best Picture that year weren't the greatest, but there were some good movies that year, like Eternal Sunshine. It was also nominated for East Was Acting. He only ever got nominated twice, this and Unforgiven, hmm. for acting. And the script, which maybe we got some issues with, and the editing. And it was nominated for the Top 100 Genres in the Sports category. And the 2007 AFI Top 100 list. Relative to the other movies we've talked about in this podcast, I guess there's like a moderate amount of actual boxing that takes place. Not all of it involves Hilary Swank. One of the longer sequences of boxing we actually see in this movie involves Big Willie at the beginning. Yep. What did you think about the portrayal of boxing relative to, let's say, the Rocky movies or some of the other things you've seen. Because I could have gone both ways on that, to be honest with you. The Rocky movies never really felt real. Maybe the first one. But when Rocky takes the kind of punishment he does, and we talked about this months ago in Rocky Four, against a guy like that who had killed his friend is now triple the puncher he was when he killed the friend. And yet Rocky lasts 15 You're rounds against him? Rocky Four. Rocky Four, yeah, yeah. But all the movies, really. He takes so much punishment. And yeah, he's punchy. But he's not dead. He probably should yeah. be from anybody, let alone when he fights Drago. Drago, I must break you. Must break you. Rocky is the brick hit house, Ryan. This is true, and the Maggie Fitzgerald is not. But I think in some ways the boxing this is more realistic than that. Also the fact that fights end so fast. I don't watch boxing. I don't know much about it. But I'm guessing that the really good fighters, MMA this is true for sure, they well, can MMA, end fights yeah. awfully fast. Look at Ronda Rousey. I know that Hillary Swank was lauded when she got her Oscar for throwing herself into the training. Apparently she got hurt and didn't tell Eastwood because it wouldn't be in character. Yeah, things like that. And Blue Bear, the Blue Bear character that cripples her at the end. 
was actually her boxing coach yeah, she for was, this yeah. movie. Yeah, Lucia Riker says here. Yeah. So, Ridgeker, I'm sure it's pronounced Riker. I'm not a big boxing fan either. I might have seen a little bit more of it than you have from the sounds of it, but not a ton. A lot of the chatter about boxing, a lot of the discussion between Morgan Freeman, Frankie, and Maggie when they're talking about footwork, when they're talking about the training aspects of it, when they're talking about strategy in the ring. Some of it's a little exaggerated in the same way that in Rounders, the whole tell of the splitting of the cookie by yeah. the Russian is a little exaggerated, but that's for the benefit of the viewers. Some of the choreography and the sound editing and stuff like that I thought was a little bit weak, but possibly my favorite aspect of it was watching Eastwood's character as the corner man. He's the best cut man in the biz, I mm -hmm. think is how they sell it off the beginning. And I thought that was really well done, just seeing the efforts made to try to either mask the injuries from the ring doctor long enough for the fight to continue and potentially win it. However realistic the actual medicine behind this might have been, like I'm not saying what he was actually doing to close the wounds or to staunch the bleeding might have been effective, but the way it was portrayed I thought was a fun moment between fighter and cornerman, cutman, however you want. Well, believable for the, us laymen who don't know much yeah. about boxing. The reason I asked about the Rocky thing is because even though we're both big fans of that series, much of the actual fighting in the ring is cartoonish and you can see the fists flailing like a good eight inches in front of faces with a big mashing sound effect overlay. In this movie, not in Rocky. In both movies. Well, Rocky definitely is. In Rocky, that. definitely. I didn't notice in this one. You have better eyes than I do. But when Clint Eastwood's character is hailed as the best cut man in the biz, I immediately flash back to that moment in Rocky with... Al Savani! You're going to cut me, Mick. Well, I yeah. can't see. I cut my eye. You're going to cut my eye. One of her early fights where her the same eye as Rocky's is effectively swollen shut. So there are a lot of Rocky Million Dollar Baby parallels to this, but in particular I found a lot of parallels in the portrayal of the fights and what's happening in between. Hell, right down to the cheating by the opponent. You talk about Drago. Or yeah, he Clubber. punches Rocky after the bell. Yeah, as does Clubber Lang. And Clubber pushes three. Rocky in the back of the head at least once after the bell. What the Blue Bear does is worse, but yeah, similar enough. Oh, yeah. And also these underdogs who had no business making it. Both of them were too old. For one thing, as Frankie makes very clear in this film, and I think Mickey That's probably true. says the same thing to Rocky, but they got there because of heart and effort. And yeah, they had some talent, but it's really more because they wanted it so badly. And I did like the fact that they pointed out that there is a lot of technique and a lot of skill involved in what these guys do. Unlike the Rocky movies where you basically see the guy just running and punching stuff. And I get fitness and conditioning is huge, but there's a lot of technique too. And you see Maggie hitting the heavy bag early in the movie. And the only comment that Morgan Freeman has is, by God, she's going to like break her wrist if she keeps punching I didn't know that, that way. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that either, but of course, like if you hit somebody the wrong way, you'll shatter your hand or you'll break your wrist if you're Even if you are strong, yeah. yeah I, mean, I also like the touch when she's learning footwork and she's doing it when she's doing her job. That's a really cute little touch. That is funny, yeah. You can see her bouncing foot to foot. You get the feeling she's always doing it no matter what she's doing because it's just obsessing her. Yeah. I think the sport was portrayed pretty well in this film. I wouldn't say it was unbelievable. This is probably one of the more accomplished films we've covered. Maybe the flat-out best film is still Field of Dreams, and that might be true for a long time. But for all of its faults, it is certainly well-made, especially when you shoot it this fast. It's almost impressive the movie came up. Well, then Eastwood always does that, I guess, doesn't he? He's a complicated guy, though. Apparently, he's pro-gay marriage, but he's on the right-wing side, even for all that's happened in the last couple of years. I like Clint Eastwood, but I'm also frustrated by Clint Eastwood for that reason alone. I don't know how you can support that side and be a reasonable person in Hollywood, but then a lot of people in Hollywood are right-wing, mm -hmm. and they just won't come out about it. He and Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, at least they do that. I don't think I've ever read anything about this. Is he pro pro, pro life? Oh, pro life is about birth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah was, I don't want it, nothing to do with abortion. I don't know. I'm guessing he must be because he made a movie about it, and he's the one who does it. I know in the past he said that what I do on screen does not necessarily reflect okay. who I am personally. I've made lots of movies where I've just walked down the street with my six shooter and blown people away, and I don't. I'm do a cowboy. That. Yeah, and he might be right wing and pro gun ownership and all that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's gonna walk down the street and murder people fair yeah i would like to believe he is if he's not pro-euthanasia that's even more impressive than that he'd make a movie that ends up being about that yeah that's why i'm curious about it because it takes a lot to play the role that he played if he didn't believe in it mm -hmm. in a movie that really espouses that right to choose and be so vulnerable like i said crying something he pretty much never did or does yeah. for me this felt not identical but similar to watching any given sunday it wasn't a terribly fun movie to watch. True. It had a definite message that it wanted to put out there when it was all said and done, and it contained some really good performances. Of those two movies, which one do you think was more effective in what it seemed to want to achieve? And the this message, one. This one, you think? Any Given Sunday is effective in what it wants to achieve. It's just not a movie I want to watch over and over again. I don't want to watch this one over and over again, but I like this one more, and I think the boxing in it is fine. 
whatever faults it may have, and then it ends up not being about that anyway. And that stuff is very touching and very moving, even if I've seen it so many times. It didn't make me want to cry like I think it did in the past, but I was very moved by it. And the fact that you've got these two good actors going head to head, you're battling through the whole thing. She never wants to listen to him really, and he's always frustrated with her. <laughs> Tells her off more than once to leave him alone. He finally starts training her, and then falls in love with her, not romantically, but as a daughter figure. I think that arc is played pretty well. We've seen that in many movies. But most movies that we like have cliches up the ass. It's how they handle them and how they put them on screen. So when you get yep. a surprise like, holy shit, this was a boxing movie that's now not a boxing movie. Kudos for that. It took some cojones for sure to put that on screen. And it's effectively portrayed in this movie. I know I asked you this question. If you asked me, I don't know what I would say as far as which one I thought was more effective. I thought they were both flawed but interesting movies. Neither one is a movie I'm inclined to go back and watch again and again because they're both kind of bummers at the end of the mm-hmm. day. But... They had their pros and cons, that's for sure. Let me put it that way. Different movie for us to cover in a sports movie podcast because I don't think we've covered anything that's all that similar to this. Most of them have been no. goofy or even flat out funny. Field of Dreams is more serious, but even that has comedy in it. And it's about life and death issues, but it's also about an afterlife. This one's about, I love this girl and I'm going to murder her. Yeah. Now, it's something I can support, but he's still killing her. So no salty discharge in this movie, Ryan? I don't think I did this time, but I have before. I don't know if I maybe they did the first time. I almost never cried a movie the first time I see it. But I remember that time where I'm saying, no, you can't die. Because I cared about her so much. Now, I think it's safe to say, we won't belabor the point, but if you're that emotionally invested in Hillary Swank's... Can you score? Yeah, you're not <laughs> making that move, right? I might have been mildly turned on, but then when she's laid up in the hospital bed with tubes and wires and she's strapped in there, not so much. The gangrenous leg at the end yeah. of it. Oh, my. I was very soft at that point. <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you for that. <laughs> Now, it's not a scoring kind of movie. Anything this dour probably can't be. No. My beer was fine, but then that's an assembly line kind of beer. MGD, you know what you're getting. What about the boss? It wasn't bad. I might have dropped my left hand long enough for it to slug me a few across the taste buds, but it's a solid IPA, right? It's a Saturday night, so you can have a lot more of them if you like, and so will I. And since my beer is gone, we should end the podcast. But before we do, we'll promote next time, two weeks from now, Days of Thunder. We're going to cover that because, what is it, the indie that's coming up pretty soon, I think? We're trying to match yeah. movies with themes and whatnot. We did golf, Happy Gilmore. We're yeah. going to do hockey and basketball movies in a little while when we get close to the finals of those two sports. Yeah, if there's one sport that I know less about than boxing or fighting generally, it might be racing. Our I... second auto racing movie, though, Talladega Nights. Yeah, and I think that lack of knowledge probably came across clearly. In the Days Talladega of Thunder, Nights. I haven't seen in a long time, but I know it's stupid. It's Top Gun and Cars, Yeah, but it's going to be fun, and it's a big turn from this movie in that way alone. <laughs> and it's our second Tom Cruise movie. Beth and I have covered, I think, nothing by Cruise, maybe, but you and I have covered Color of Money and now this. No, we did Rain Man. Beth and I did Rain Man. But as many movies as he's done... It's only been recently that we've been doing them on this podcast or our other podcast. Has he done any other sports movies, or is it just Days of Thunder? I can't think of any. I guess if you want well, to... Color of Money, because we consider his pool. So, yeah, I mean, movie. I guess you can consider maybe Jerry Maguire as like yes, a tangential so. so. sports movie. And I happen to watch that last night. I still like it, even though there are issues with that. Maybe we'll cover that one one day, because there's enough sports night that could call it a sports movie. And I believe it was nominated for the sports list of the genres. I think if you're going to talk about Draft Day then Jerry Maguire probably right. falls into very There's comparable... more sports in Jerry Maguire than in yeah. draft day. Okay. Okay, well, I'm at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. The website is still TopAndUnderProject.com. We are now on Spotify. I hope Ooh. soon we'll be on Stitcher. I'm still working on that. I know I keep saying that, but I keep putting it off. My laptop is dead. I have to get a new one, so that doesn't help. I'll do it eventually. We'll get on Stitcher, but we're not there yet. Well, was that a Clint Eastwood <laughs> I'll impression? Do. I'll get to you later. <laughs> We should have done more Batman, because basically it's the same voice in a lot of ways. The gravel. I think I slid in into it accidentally once you did, or twice when I attempted a Clint Eastwood. Well, then let me try this. Take it easy, dudes. I know that you will. Because I'm Eastwood.